This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode and for this time of the year because one of our favourite events in the investing calendar here in Australia is the Sown Hearts and Minds Conference. We get to hear from some of the best investors in Australia and around the world. And there's nothing the Equity Mates community loves more than a stock pitch. Absolutely. And we get 12 of them in one day. I know. What more can you ask for? <laughs> nothing. Nothing more to ask for. And uh, leading up to the Sown Hearts and Minds Investment Leaders Conference, we're lucky to have some of the experts joining us here on Equity Mates. And we kick off today uh, by introducing and welcoming to Equity Mates, Benit Kathari. Benit, how are you going? Good. Thanks for having me. We're very excited for this one. Benit is coming all the way from uh, the United States and he is the managing partner and principal portfolio manager of Technique Capital Manager, global fund manager that he founded in 2012. And Benit is part of this year's Sown Hearts and Minds Investment Leaders Conference, which is now in its sixth year. So before we get into today's interview with Benit, just a a reminder that uh, this is an amazing conference. Uh, as Ren said, there's 12 local and international fund managers pitching their highest conviction stocks. The headline, Ren, is yes. that one of the uh, one of the uh, I guess presenters on the day is going to be Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway. It can't really get much bigger than mm-hmm. that. And we're all, they're also lucky enough to have MIT Institute Professor Robert Langer, who is the co-founder of Moderna. So. An amazing lineup of experts. Um, the good news is that tickets are 500. It's an online on-demand event, but Equity Mates are receiving a 20% discount for the first 50 tickets sold. So head to the Sown Hearts and Minds conference website. We'll put a link in the show notes and enter the code EquityMates, one word, for 20% off. It's going to be amazing. It is. It is. I mean, getting to hear Charlie Munger speak will be pretty epic. Unfortunately, he won't be delivering a stock pitch, but I imagine it would be Berkshire Hathaway if he was going to pitch a stock. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, we're, we're very excited. Uh, head over to the website and to give you a taste of what we can expect on the day, uh, we've got Benit here with us today. He won't be sharing his stock pick. He's going to be keeping that one secret. He has actually pitched a stock in the last three years. They were respectively up 72%, 69%, and 112%. Jeez. So, Benet, you've got uh, you got a bit of form there. Uh, are you a bit nervous to try and uh, match your previous three stock picks? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about skipping it this year because of exactly what you said. You're, you're trying your luck. But maybe, maybe pitching, you know, a fourth stock after three good ones is a reminder to everyone that. Uh, sometimes stocks do blow up. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, we're excited to hear uh, what you pitch on the day. But in this interview, we want to cover a little bit about yourself and then two topics which are very hot in the Equity Mates community. And uh, we've seen you've been sharing some commentary on China and investing in China and then the crypto space. 
We love to uh, start these conversations by hearing about people's first investments. We generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Gosh. Um, so, you know, just by way of background, I I don't come from an investing family. I was born and raised in India. Um, I'd never owned a stock in my life. My parents didn't own stocks. I graduated college with debt. And my first job in the investment world was working for a legendary investor named Stan Druckenmiller at Duquesne. And I still remember to this day that my first interview with him, uh, you know, I had no idea who he was. And as embarrassing as, as that is, it was incredibly intimidating once you figured out who he was <laughs> and you had the investing background that I did or the lack thereof. And, and every day you sort of, I think had that feeling that we've all experienced of, of, you know, imposter syndrome. We kind of felt somewhere between lucky and you felt like you didn't really um, deserve the job, but the guy I worked for, so this is the year 2005, um, 2006, a year out of college, the guy I worked for sent me off to a investment conference. There's annually uh, a big gaming conference called E3 used to be held in LA, probably still is. And he sent me off there to figure out uh, between Sony and Microsoft who was going to win this round. The console upgrade cycles in the gaming industry occurs every five or 10 years, and we were approaching the next big one. And it's exactly the kind of thing you send your most junior analysts off to do, <laughs> because rarely can you just show up at a conference and figure out the answer. And, you know, he didn't want to go. Understandably, he sent me off to it. And he had a very clear mission he, uh, and very clear direction. He said, it's going to be either Sony or Microsoft. Those are the two big dogs. Just go figure out which of those two looks like it's got a higher chance of success. The instructions couldn't have been clearer. I was maybe six months on the job. I show up there. I tried out the Sony systems. I tried out the Microsoft systems. You know, if you played PlayStation and Xbox, it's kind of more of the same. And on my way home, on that first day of the conference or, or way back to the hotel, I ran into the guys over at Nintendo and uh, the line at the Nintendo station started off small in the morning. And by the end of the day, it was wrapping around the block. You know, I'm the kind of person when I see a really long line at a restaurant, I want to get on that line, right? I, I'm never the kind of person who wants to go to the restaurant where you can get, get your sandwich really quickly. Cause that, that makes me skeptical. And so I got on that line. And back then, this was so early that it, their console system hadn't even been called uh, the Wii yet. It was called Nintendo Revolution. And it was truly a revolution. It was something completely different. And uh, I tried it out. And I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever played. And I grew up as a PlayStation kid. You know, I grew up in college staying up late, playing Halo on, the, on, on friends' Xboxes. I had a PS3, you know, playing every... Uh, countless hours of GTA. And so I was a hardcore gamer, uh, PC gamer, all of it. And the Nintendo system was anything but. But I remember just thinking this had the potential to beat out Sony and Microsoft, which at the time was such a, a heretical thought that the next day my boss called me and he said, well, which is it, Sony or Microsoft? I couldn't muster up the energy to tell him I thought it was Nintendo. I did my work that day on... What is the story behind Nintendo? And I had concluded by the end of this trip that it was not Sony or Microsoft, that I thought it was worth putting all of our chips on Nintendo. I got back and it's hard to describe the, the, the feelings, but uh, you know, not only did you have to have the courage of making a big stock pitch uh, when you were already kind of insecure, not having the kind of background people around you did, but you were now also pitching a stock that was neither of the two that your boss distinctly <laughs> told you to go out and research. And describing it was also a little bit counterintuitive because it was, you know, you hold the controller and you whack things around and it's, it was nothing like what we'd been used to. The stock at the time was about 14,000 yen and we bought about $100 million worth. Oh, um, <laughs> over the next year and a half, Nintendo went to 70,000 yen. It was a five-fold return. And... You know, I'll take some credit for getting us in the stock. I'll take zero credit for getting us out. That was, that was the genius of, of, of the people that I worked for. 
And so more or less, we bought the stock Nintendo at its low when no one expected these guys to do anything because for 20 years, they had always been kind of a, a third tier, not even a second tier, third tier behind Sony and Microsoft uh, to a five-fold return. I'll never forget the whole experience because it's a reminder of, of how important luck is. But, you know, it's like that old story where you got to sort of be there. A lot of other people, you know, probably didn't go to the conference. I think if you had just been to the conference, you would have seen the product. Mm. But it also was a reminder that no matter how young or inexperienced you are, you know, you shouldn't sell yourself short. I think it would have been too tempting. And I've run into this temptation many, many years uh, thereafter, which is, you know, you, you often, when you've got doubts in your head, you will cede to the person in the room with experience. There's nothing that pains more as an investor to have not followed your instinct. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a, a you know, a, a kind of a funny story, but a, but a rare one where someone with as little experience as me shouldn't have been following their own instinct, but I did. And, you know, it was an amazing trade. And they backed you into the tune of a hundred million. That took some, some convincing and back and forth, but yeah, uh, again, the, the credit goes to the people with, uh, you know, with the decision-making powers at the time that they, that they felt like they should have trusted me. So Benit, from, from that moment uh, to now, um, you've since gone and, and launched your own, um, own fund so have you developed an investment philosophy on your website? You mentioned a repeatable, scalable investment process. So are you able to elaborate on this? Yeah. Techni is a technology fund with a global focus. I'm based in New York. We've got teams all around the world. We have a team in Brazil, India, China, Korea, and now Southeast Asia and Jakarta, Indonesia. And, you know, I've come to believe a few things about investing. Number one, It's the portfolio that matters more so than any individual stock pick. Uh, As much as I love coming down to hearts and minds. And, you know, I think one of the most frustrating questions I get asked is what's your favorite stock pick? Because I don't think about it like that. I think about us owning a portfolio and a portfolio has some things that are good and some things that are bad. You just never know ahead of time. And in fact, uh, I think a good portfolio has things that are working and things that aren't. But over the long run, the portfolio should do well. So we have an enormous focus on our investment process on the portfolio. So what is a portfolio to us? Number one, it's concentrated. You know, if there's one lesson I've learned from from the mongers and the buffets of the world is that you can't, uh, you, you just cannot outperform with a diversified portfolio. So concentration is, is, is a single digit number of stocks to us. I think once you get into 20, 30, 40 stocks, you know, at some point you might as well own an index. The second thing is if you're going to be that concentrated, you better buy a specific type of stock. So we only buy businesses that are growing. We only buy businesses that are profitable and businesses that are unlevered. I think if you own a portfolio of companies that grow, make money and can do so without the use of debt and the, let's say 10 companies that you own are uncorrelated to each other. So your fund isn't a China fund. It's not a crypto fund. It's got one of everything in it. The odds that you take a permanent capital loss on that portfolio over, let's say, a three, four-year period, you know, I don't want to say it's zero, but it's very low. And that's what we're trying to solve for, which is a portfolio that's concentrated, uh, that can, where the individual businesses can grow, make money, can do so without the use of debt. And then there's not a lot of correlation within that portfolio. Mm, I love that. And I love that the investment philosophy is very focused on the the portfolio construction rather than the philosophy for finding each individual stock. I think it's a lesson that bears repeating and, and reminding ourselves. But Benit, you, uh, you mentioned that it's not a China fund and it's not a crypto fund. It's an uncorrelated fund. Uh, but we are going to turn to China and crypto because uh, we were looking at your Twitter in preparation for this uh, interview and we uh, saw you retweeted an AFR article um, on, on yourself and you said it's very early days in both China and crypto. And that caught our eye because, you know, they're the two hottest top topics in the equity mates community at the moment. Let's start with China. I guess a lot of people would be somewhat surprised to hear you say it's early days in China because it has been an absolute economic miracle for the past few decades. I think the number is like 600 million people have been taken out of poverty and we've seen some of the massive companies that have emerged um, as a result. Why do you think it's still early in the China story? 
So let's take a step back and, and, and zoom out a level. China will be with 98% probability the world's largest economy within the next five or 10 years. And when that happens, GDP per capita will be about one third of the US's GDP per capita. In other words, there's another several decades thereafter of growth. 10 or 15 years ago, when I made our first Chinese investments, China was one seventh uh, the size of the US economy. And since then, it's compounded at a much higher rate of return for a longer period than the US has. So it's now already three quarters the size of the US economy. Very, very fundamentally, it's the second largest country in the world with over a billion people. And they've got a very clear goal starting at the very top, which is of growing the size of the pie. The second advantage that I think they've got is they think about uh, the way that they're gonna get there in terms of leadership position uh, through the use of technology. So what that has created, and you know, we as a fund are extremely bullish technology outside of the US. The way we look at it is really simple. If you look at the global stock market of technology company, about 75% of the market cap is in the US, but the US is 4% of the world's population and 16% of global GDP. Said differently, 96% of the world's population, 84% of the world's GDP has practically no representation in the stock market. And that's not sustainable. Now, it's tempting to say, gosh, who's really gonna compete with Microsoft globally? You know, won't you just have one operating system, et cetera? I would question that, but I would at least grant that, all right, there might be some sectors where you'll have a winner that's an American company globally, but it's not gonna happen across the board. So, you know, I think China has shown an ability to develop a local ecosystem. It's shown an ability to play catch up. It's shown an ability to perform. I think the odds that they give up now when they're, when they're this close to winning the race, and, and again, the day they win the race, they still got a long way to go the way they calculate, which is getting GDP per capita to be at the same level as the United States is. So uh, it's, it's extremely, extremely unlikely that I think the single greatest economic story of the last hundred years, which is about a billion people have been pulled out of poverty, right? I, I, I think what still uh, mesmerizes me is that the Western media, um, and I would include, maybe I should say English media generally, rarely mentions what China has achieved from, from a humanitarian perspective, which is an economic engine that was almost necessary to pull something like a billion people out of really complete poverty. And people always ask me, what's the next China? And my answer is it's China <laughs> because there's 600 million people on the East coast of China that are now living a comfortable life relative to 25 years ago. But there are 600 million people in rural China who want to get out of rural China, move over to the Eastern seaboard. And the government wants this, the country wants this. And that's a huge economic engine, right? That population is twice the size of the U.S., twice the size of Europe. You know, I just don't think you want to get in the way of this uh, freight train. Benet, there's been a lot of concern really recently about the increased regulatory action that's happening in China. We've seen what's happening in the tech space, the for-profit education, gaming, um, as well as the economic instability. You know, we've seen what's just happened with Evergrande. So how do you think about these risks, you know, over the next few decades? Oh, I think over the next few decades, it'll be a blip. Here's how I think about it. I think every five years, as, as we all know, um, China goes through um, – an election. It's not really an election cycle the way, let's say, America has it with every four years. It's more of a confirmation process with, with a few folks setting out an agenda for the next five years, the next five years. And what they tend to do prior to that 12 to 18 month period approaching the election, which in this year will be in October of 2022, is there's a lot of, you know, they pick up the saber and wave it at areas they'd like to improve their society, if there are parts of it that they don't like, they, they fix it and, and take action. What you have to remember is the following. Xi Jinping is a uh, de facto nominee to lead the country again. I think that much is, is well reported. What's not well reported is about 100 people beneath him who are fighting, they're sort of angling for their political power. And in China, if you don't get that, that's all there was, and your political career might come to an end. And so you've got a number of deputies hundreds of them throughout China who've got 
uh, jurisdiction over some tiny little province, some tiny little sector of the economy, some something that they've got an opportunity to show the, the people at the top that they can uh, enact some change, and this is their opportunity to do so. So I think uh, there's a lot of posturing that's going on. I think it all comes to an end uh, in about 11 months. Number two, I think there's almost nothing that's happened in China that is negative for the economy over the long run. You know, so let's talk about the education uh, shutdown that occurred for the for-profit industry. In 2018, 2019, 2020, China registered a population decline for three years in a row. It's never happened before. So you now got the largest country in the world that's focused on growing, now registering uh, population decline. And when they researched it, one of the things they discovered is, well, it's quite expensive to have multiple kids because it turns out that there's a for-profit education sector in China that's $400 billion annually, and parents don't want to spend that much money. So they shut that down. It wasn't about the education industry. You know, they shut down several other things in the economy that made it difficult for parents to have multiple kids. They've got a three-child policy, and the average family has something like one and a half kids, right? I think to, to sort of stay flat, you need to have 2.2 kids per family. They're targeting three, and they're tracking at half of that. So they've got uh, much bigger ambitions, much bigger goals. You know, one of the other announcements they had was if you go to a factory in, in the United States or Europe, what you would find are, are you know, employees with, with wage protections, you know, all these sort of requirements around wearing a hard hat and, and OSHA-approved safety goggles. No one thinks anything of that. In China, these things don't exist. They make them a rule, and people start screaming, oh, my goodness, they're so sold. What people have lost context of is that they're coming from a different place. Right? They're solving much different problems. So just like you know, America didn't crumble when we enabled uh, or enforced minimum wage requirements or all sorts of other factory safety standards, the same also is unlikely to happen in China. So it's, it's hard for me to be bothered by them instituting a number of uh, uh, you know, economic policies that I think are, are medium term to long term quite GDP positive. I appreciate the uh, level-headedness of your analysis, Benit, and uh, you, you're right that if you, you your news diet purely consists of, I guess, Western day-to-day media, you might have a very different take. So let's get ask for your level-headed take on what's perhaps the most consuming uh, China issue at the moment, which is the US-China, I guess, great power rivalry and especially uh, what we're hearing and seeing around Taiwan at the moment. Uh, what's your take on that, I guess, from a geopolitical perspective, but probably more important for this conversation as an investor who's looking at opportunities in China? I don't make very much of it. I think one has to remember that the vast, vast majority of wars that have uh, been fought over the last 100 years have had the United States as, as some, you know, to, to varying degrees as an aggressor. And, and as far as I can remember, China was was hardly involved in any of them. I think the odds that China starts something that looks anything like a war uh, are, are quite remote. And they've been very clear and they've been very consistent about that. You know, in the modern world, uh, it doesn't behoove anyone when you've got nuclear powers all around the world for anyone to be talking in, in such aggressive terms. I think as far as, as an investor goes, you know, the hot asset in Taiwan that everyone talks about is, is TSMC. TSMC is probably the single most critical company in the global uh, supply chain infrastructure. And this was true, by the way, pre-COVID. As, as most people probably know, Taiwan Semiconductor produces something like 60% of the global high-end semiconductors that go into almost anything um, that, that you touch these days, uh, including automobiles and, 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 and many sensitive parts of the economy. Well, I think there's uh, an assumption by a certain group of people out there that you know, China would therefore want to uh, take over Taiwan as a backdoor into taking control of Taiwan Semiconductor. China famously over the last 20 years has poured billions of dollars into a homegrown, so mainland China, domestic semiconductor industry, uh, which has had so far almost no success in producing semiconductors that non-Chinese companies would want to use. Well, the problem I've got with this idea that they would then therefore go after Taiwan Semiconductor is Taiwan Semiconductor isn't an island. Taiwan may be an island, but a semiconductor company these days produces all of its chip by buying equipment that's sold by American companies. It's sold by companies like AMAT, by LAM, 
Uh, it's sold by a Dutch, very important company called ASML. These companies in that scenario would be completely shut out of providing sensitive equipment to China. And so you would be buying something, it would be a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, and so I, I think it's one of those arguments that's easy to jump to a conclusion about something nefarious happening. It just doesn't stand up to logic. I think what's much more likely over any reasonable time horizon is that the current state of affairs continues without, you know, without a clear resolution. And there are tons and tons of examples of that geopolitically over time. Now, Benit, before we move on to discussing all things crypto, uh, I want to close out this part of the conversation by asking you, what are some of the most exciting sectors or companies that you're seeing in China at the moment? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I would, it's, it's a very long list. Maybe I'll talk about two of them. Let's go two. The, the first one is we should take very seriously China's commitment to reducing the carbon emissions and decarbonization of that entire economy over the next 50 years. Um, I think we should take most countries quite seriously um, at those proclamations, but China in particular. And therefore, I think the electric vehicle industry in China, which is the largest automobile market in the world and growing, is probably one of the biggest and, and, and hottest sectors over the next five to 10 years. You know, to me, there is no question about it that electric vehicle penetration, which is hovering at about 1%, is going to go to 100%. And I think it's very, very likely that you're at the very steep part of that S-curve where you're just about to rocket. Now, there are tons of limitations. You know, you're, you're not selling software. You're, you're selling a physical thing that needs to be made. You got to dig up and find, you know, nickel and cobalt and lithium. But it's going to get done because if a country wants it to get done, if a group of countries want it to get done, that's how big things get done. And this seems like it's happening in China's, I think, um, you know, ground zero for this. So that's the first sector. The second sector is software. Historically, China has not had a very good software industry. And I think there's a very good reason for that. When you've got an economy that grows 10% a year every single year, software is typically invented because you're looking for efficiencies. You know, when you've got an economy like the American economy, which grows, let's say, 0 to 2% a year, software allows a company to grow its profits, even if revenues aren't growing. Well, in China, just for showing up, Every year you get 10% more revenues. Well, if that's the case, no one is looking to make things more efficient. Well, now that growth rate is slowing. And what you're starting to see is, is enterprise software uh, starting to, to creep up. One of the things we track, because we have several investments in this, is the AI sector, and you can track patents. Uh, China has now uh, issued the most patents globally of any country in the AI sector. Now, it's, it's very easy to get critical about the quality of some of these patents, and I'm, and I'm open to some of those criticism. But nonetheless, I think the, the AI software sector in China, um, and there's going to be some publicly listed companies over the next 12 to 18 months, I think it's going to be uh, an unbelievable sector over the next five to 10 years. So those would be my two. Fascinating uh, sectors. We could do a podcast episode on each of them. Um, but we, we've got to move on, Benit, because we want to get your thoughts on another uh, sort of hot topic, which is crypto. Before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Vanguard Super. You all know Vanguard's award-winning ETFs, but did you know Vanguard Super is winning awards too? Vanguard Super is backed by 45 years of global investment expertise. Plus, it's low cost, so you keep more of what's yours. The Vanguard Super Lifecycle product has one of the lowest super fees on the market, now more than 30% lower than industry average. So whether you're just starting your career or planning your retirement, Vanguard has you covered. Head to Vanguard.com. .com.au slash super to explore Vanguard Super. 
Fee comparison based on super ratings, smart data as at 31 March 2024. Other fees and costs may apply. Vanguard Super Proprietary Limited is the trustee of Vanguard Super. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD available at vanguard.com.au slash super and consider if a product is right for you before making any financial decisions. So, Benit, before the break, uh, we we spoke about China. We now want to move to another uh, hot topic, which is cryptocurrency. And in that tweet that we spoke about earlier, you said uh, very early days in both China and crypto. Crypto total market cap, I think, sits at now two point five trillion. Uh, so it's it's definitely had a an amazing decade. I guess the question to kick us off, uh, why are we still early in cryptocurrency? I think if you if you open up the Wall Street Journal on any given day, there'll be a, a hundred topics in there. And if all you do is read the newspaper for a given day, you won't have a clue on, on how to contextualize those hundred different stories. They all seem really important. But I think if you take a big step back, the very clear, most important story of the last 25 years, and therefore I think this hundred year period, is the internet. And there, there's no question about that. And I think we're, we're just beginning to enter. You, you've got to remember that just in the last five or 10 years, something like four or 5 billion people around the world got connected to the internet via the smartphone. This just happened. It just happened. In the grand scheme of things, this happened last night. Therefore, I think we're entering the golden era of investing in network effects. To me, cryptocurrencies and any other concept which which includes things like smart contracts or or protocols or applications you know whether it's nfts or metaverse any of those things which really utilize four five six billion people being connected 24 hours a day to each other i think that's where you got to be invested and today nothing has the global reach nothing has the kind of effect and the kind of foundational impact of cryptocurrencies that i can think of Pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating time. So we've spoken to, you know, investors who are Bitcoin maximalists, who are Ethereum only, or, you know, open to everything. So, Benit, where do you sit on the scale? Yeah, um, I'm not going to evade your question. <laughs> it um, feels like it. <laughs> but but uh, I'll offer my personal opinion and, and then I'll tell you our, our, our firm view, our, our sort of institutional or house view, sure. which, as you may guess by the answer, uh, the phrasing of that uh, answer are, are two different things. <laughs> I'm personally a Bitcoin maximalist, uh, just maxis. And institutionally, we think that it's really quite early to figure out what the winners are. And a lot of these these tokens and certainly some of the other coins, so the difference between a coin and a token is a coin is its own blockchain. Uh, So think Ethereum, Solana, whereas a token will use a a, a protocol but often leverage an existing blockchain such as Bitcoin or Ethereum. Our institutional or house view is that a lot of these coins and tokens present interesting value and it's really quite early to bet on them or bet against them. And so institutionally what we have done is we bet on what we call the picks and shovels of the crypto industry. So for example, I think we're the only fund in the world that's a shareholder in almost every major exchange in the world. Shareholders in Coinbase, shareholders in Kraken, shareholders in Hobi, FTX, Deribit, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've really made the bet that you just want to own a slice of it all. Because if this is 1990 for Web 1.0, you don't want to sit here and pick winners. My personal view is the following. I'm, I'm smart enough to realize that my personal views are often wrong, which is why, you know, we've got a, a firm that has the ability to some degree to override my personal opinions on things. My personal view is the following. A lot of these coins and tokens effectively exist to create value, which then gets transferred in between people in the value being money. And that idea of the money is supposed to create an incentive for people to do the thing that you want them to do, whatever, you know, whether it's play a game or, or whatever the thing is. Well, why are we creating all these other versions of money if we've got Bitcoin? We've got a $1 trillion asset with, with a 13-year investment history. It's got no corporation, no one behind it. It's unhackable. It's absolutely sturdy and it's robust and it keeps getting better and bigger. It's got institutional support about it. Why aren't we just using that? You know, Why are we kind of recreating the wheel? What I think is going to happen over the next five to 10 years 
is a lot of these protocols are going to start moving over to Bitcoin. I do believe that Bitcoin uh, can solve most, if not almost all of the problems that a lot of these other coins and tokens seek to solve today. So, Benit, looking at your website, uh, Techni is an investor in a lot of industries that seem to be right on the forefront of disruption from cryptocurrency and blockchain. Technology, media, payments, telcos, uh, you know, they're, they're often the businesses or the sectors spoken about when we talk about the disruption that is coming. What companies or, or what sectors do you see as the most at risk of disruption uh, from this cryptocurrency wave? Uh, everyone. <laughs> really the answer, nice. You know, really, the answer is everyone. And to me, this is, this is just as big as the internet was. Uh, there was no one not at risk of the internet. It was simply a question of, did you figure it out in the year 2000, 2010, or 2020? You had no option to not worry about the internet. Did you need to figure it out yesterday, or have you got a little bit of time? And I think, I think crypto is the same thing. So the, so the big one is obviously finance, traditional finance, what, what is, is, is called TradFi in the industry. You know, to me, it's, it's a really quite sobering statistic that out of the 7 or 8 billion people in the world, only a fraction of them have really been fully integrated into the banking system in, in a way that's, that's welcoming, inviting, and profitable for them, for the individual. And there's no reason why it needs to be that way. To me, it's just uh, remarkable that as the connectivity of, of the global population has gone through the roof over the last five or 10 years, you know, billions of people have been connected. Uh, the financial ecosystem has remained unchanged. The number of bank accounts at JP Morgan has remained unchanged, et cetera. So I think everywhere you look, whether it's um, access to money, access to savings, access to investing, access to mortgages and lending and borrowing, all of these features and tools that people like you and I are, are, are accustomed to, we're used to, we're, we expected because we belong in the financial system. Uh, there's billions of people that don't, I think would never will. And I think the single greatest achievement crypto can have is to create a, a truly fully inclusive banking ecosystem globally. There's an element of that, which is of course, you know, something like uh, a few billion people in the world now live in a regime which has double-digit inflation. You know, I think there's a real economic salvation that could be offered to those billions of people in the form of Bitcoin. And these stories, unfortunately, a dime a dozen. And each time you hear or read about them, it, 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 it sort of breaks your heart. So, so finance is one. The second big one is the Internet itself. And I'm sure you've read a lot about Web 3.0. And, you know, we could do a whole another five-hour <laughs> podcast on that. But here's how I would very simply describe it. Web 1.0, so this is the 90s, this is where I grew up, was effectively a bunch of websites that were read-only. You know, you'd go on a website, you would read it, and people hadn't realized that websites could be interactive. It didn't just have to be like a newspaper. You know, when people first created the Internet, they just replicated the magazine. And you remember you would have pages where it would actually flip because that's what they just knew. <laughs> Well, then you had Web 2.0, where you had things like Facebook and Twitter, which was two-way. The problem was it was controlled by corporations. And so all the value you were creating in all the YouTube videos you were uploading to your page or all the tweets you were tweeting out, you weren't getting a dime. Uh, it was accreting to, to some corporation. Web 3.0 turns that upside down. It effectively takes the read-write functionality that we discovered over the last decade, that websites aren't static, you can contribute, you can read, edit, but that the value you create should accrete to the creator in the form of tokens, et cetera. And I think that's going to be a huge breakthrough, uh, which will be attributable directly and fundamentally to crypto because you got to use that underlying technology. And it's going to rec represent economic liberation that you, I think, haven't seen because think about the trillions of dollars of wealth that have been created by of five companies around the world to now getting distributed to all the people that are actually creating those values. It is fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. I love talking about it. And you're right, Benit, that's probably another five hour episode. <laughs> Ren and I also have a debate around the value of Facebook and Metaverse, which is probably another five hour <laughs> conversation. But look, before we get to our final three questions, I just did want to quickly touch on Hearts and Minds Investment Leaders Conference. You're back this year for your fourth appearance. Um, so why is supporting HM1 uh, important to you? I guess there's two things. One is 
um, the mission that they've got, uh, the, the amount of money that, that, that they've now raised. I lose track of it. Um, the last I'd, I'd read, it was over $25 million. I think the number is probably greater than that. You couldn't spend your time and resources uh, in a better way than supporting medical research. Mm. To me and to probably many, many people who also participate, paramount. The, the second, which, which is just a personal comment, is the, the people um, that I've gotten to know, the, the organizers, the people I've, I've been lucky enough to have had dinners with and, and who've hosted us over the years are just some of the nicest people uh, that I've met. You know, it's an added benefit that they all speak English, which you don't <laughs> often get when you when you get on a very long flight from New York. But feels a little bit like a, a home away from home because I've now gone there every single year for several years. Uh, we've we've got several clients down in Australia, um, and it's a nice opportunity to see a bunch of them. So it's just been it's been a wonderful little break that I kind of get to enjoy each year. Mm. Um, you know, right before the holidays kick in. Nice, and I've got to ask as well. You know, your last three picks, as we said at the top of the show, have delivered 72%, 69%, and 112% return uh, in the 12 months since since pitching those stocks. So what's the secret sauce to picking a stock that will have a catalyst for change in a period of 12 months that are going to deliver these sorts of returns? Um, you know, I, I assure you that those results could have gone could have gone the absolute opposite direction. You know, to me, I think it's it's just... Over a 12-month period, with you know, let's just admit, is a is a relatively short uh, time period. Uh, the the single biggest driver of something that could help you is catching sentiment. You know, sentiment is the kind of thing that I mean, just just think about the last 12 months, or or the you know, from what happened to the beginning of last year to the middle of the pandemic towards you know maybe six or nine months later. When sentiment shifts, you can make 50, 100 percent very very quickly. And so, if I had to pick one variable, um, you would probably want to buy a stock where sentiment is quite negative. And if I think about, you know, we, we first pitched a, uh, a Brazilian company where sentiment is quite negative. We then pitched a Chinese company where sentiment is quite negative. We then pitched a payments company where sentiment, it was an IPO, sentiment is quite negative. And so the stock we're working on for this year, sentiment is quite negative and people are quite uh, bared up on it. You know, it's a phenomenal, it's a $20, $30 billion business. So it's a large company. Sentiment is negative. And, you know, if you get those things right, you can make a lot of money in, in a short period. Well, uh, very much looking forward to hearing the stock pitch. A reminder to the Equitymates community that if you want to hear Benit Pitch and uh, the other amazing expert investors uh, and also Charlie Munger, uh, head to the Sone uh, Hearts and Minds website. We'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, for the first 50 uh, community members who buy a ticket, you'll get 20% off. So a fantastic opportunity here. Some of the best in the business pitch their uh, most amazing stock pitch for that for the next coming 12 months. So very much looking forward to it. Benit, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, we've had a, a, great, a great amount of fun. And uh, Ren is going to just close out with our final three questions that we always ask all guests who come on. So, Benit, we like to uh, start by asking, uh, do you have any books that you consider must-read? I'm a, uh, a bit of a Peter Thiel fanboy, and I think everyone needs to read his, I think his only book, uh, certainly his most famous book called Zero to One. It is just, you know, the guy's a contrarian. He does not know how to think in a straight line. <laughs> and I think that book is, is, the, is, is one of the most powerful business books that I've ever read in my life. Nice one. Yeah. Love it. Uh, second one, forget, uh, valuation, uh, just purely on fundamentals. What's the best company you've ever come across? Huh. Um, <laughs> gosh, look, I think, um, the best companies in almost every instance have the best CEO in place. It's hard to think of anyone right now operating more at the height of their game than probably probably Facebook. So I think that, you know, I think he goes down as, as a, as a goat and it's kind of remarkable to see someone at roughly a trillion dollars in market cap effectively make a hard pivot. Mm. And, and by the way, to, to, to do it quite publicly. Yeah. And I think the, the most remarkable thing about what's happening is, you know, what, what he had built over the last, let's say 16 years, was just an unbelievable brand. What people underestimated was how amazing Facebook as a brand had become. And then the brand became tarnished 
and it had negative value. And he recognized it and got rid of it. So I, I think whenever you see a CEO effectively make a hard turn publicly, especially when it's difficult or, or not easy to do, you know, you've got to kind of tip your hat to them and, and, and watch them and, and follow them. So you know, Facebook, it would be my candidate just because of the guy that runs it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. Now, Benit, this is normally our final question. We have thrown one extra one in for the HM1 uh, speakers, uh, but if you think back to your younger self, you know, going to that video games conference, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, it would be to spend more alone time. I think when you've got the inexperience that I had in the investing world, I was very tempted to spend time with a lot of other people, to build mentors, to learn from others, to, to go out to dinners all the time, to go out to lunches, to make friends. And I think in doing that, there were times when I lost a lot of myself. And now that I've got 16 years of experience compared to zero. When I started, I find myself wanting to go out to these dinners and conferences less. And I find myself wanting to, I would rather spend four or five hours in a book or four or five hours on the internet going deep in a topic by myself. And I wish I had done that a lot more. I did that a lot in high school. I did that a lot in college, but I wish in in my first five or 10 years professionally, I had allowed myself to be a lot more alone with my own head and with my own thoughts rather than always kind of seek either the comfort or, or the experience of others. Love that. That's, uh, that's some good advice there. Now, Benit, a final question uh, specifically for the HM1 speakers because Charlie Munger is uh, the keynote speaker at this year's conference. If you had five minutes with Charlie Munger, what would you ask him? We're separated by something like 75 years in age or, or whatever the math is. <laughs> and to anyone who's approaching 100 years, my, my, my real question is, you know, from the day Charlie Munger was born to, to today, there was this unbelievable revolution that happened called the internet. And, you know, for the most part, uh, both Charlie and Buffett missed it. And I think it's quite remarkable that uh, it wasn't for a lack of access, right? These guys hung, literally hung out with Bill Gates, uh, had Bill Gates on the board. And that's just the one person we know about, right? Let's just assume that uh, they had access to whoever they wanted. I mean, they, there, were, there were stories about Larry and Sergey would come out to visit them when they changed the name of Google to, to Alphabet to make it like a holding company, kind of like Berkshire. And for someone who's, who's, who's gone through so many cycles, you know, my one question is when you see something that could, that could be a big deal, what is your process? for going through that exercise. And today, I think it would be, it would be cryptocurrencies. It, it might be a giant scam. It might be a huge fraud or, or a fad, but it might be something giant. Uh, you know, you could sort of go on and, and kind of just keep investing in the Coca-Colas of the world and you would do just fine. But I think it would be a tragedy if you didn't invest some resources in figuring it out. So I'd love to ask, you know, often the best questions you can't really ask if you don't have a personal relationship because question kind of just gets treated literally but that would be my question which is there must have been many five-year periods from let's say 1990 to today where you had to ask yourself if this was a big thing or not and in each instance you decided not just what was that process i would love to hear that answer great question great question well benit that brings us to the end of our conversation today it's been an absolute pleasure we've taken so much from this and i'm sure the equity mates community as well will and uh, we're looking forward to seeing your stock pitch. Here's to another year of 100% plus growth. So uh, <laughs> all the best and we uh, will hopefully keep in touch and uh, chat at some point next year. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you, thanks. Ren. Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. 
The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Today's episode is proudly supported by Vanguard Super. Now, as you know, here at Equitymates, we hate fees. And after just over a year in market, Vanguard Super have lowered their fees. Their award-winning life cycle option now has one of the lowest fees on the market, more than 30% lower than industry average. With a yearly fee of just 0.56%, which bundles administration fees, investment fees, and transaction costs, that's only $280 on a balance of $50,000. Extend your investment success with Vanguard to your superannuation. Head to vanguard.com.au slash super to explore Vanguard Super. Fee comparison based on super rating smart data as at 31 on March 2024. Other fees and costs may apply. Vanguard Super PTYLTD is the trustee of Vanguard Super. Read the relevant PDS and TMD available at vanguard.com.au super and consider if a product is right for you before making any financial decisions. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 